my name is Bridget Almanov, and this is my Critical Family History Podcast. There were a couple things I knew about my mom's dad's side of the family. They immigrated from Sweden, had lots of kids, and eventually they settled down on a farm in Whidbey Island. Little did I know, what I knew of my family history was more like the game of two truths and a lie. Yeah, I was always told that they were sweet. <laughs> That's my grandpa, Gary Evald Dahlman, and his exclamation is regarding the fact that his grandfather, my maternal great-great-grandpa, was actually born in Wassa, Finland. 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 His name was August Einar Dahlman. Now, let me give you a little historical background about what was going on in Finland. Basically, Sweden ruled Finland until 1808 when it was conquered by Russia in this great war against Sweden and was made an autonomous Grand Duchy within the Russian Empire. And I guess Russia and Sweden really didn't like each other because Russian bureaucrats actually supported Finnish nationalism in order to really separate the Finns from the Swedes. And in 1863, the Finnish language was officially recognized within the administration. And nine years later, my great-great-grandparents were born in Finland to a Swedish-speaking family. When Finland was still under Sweden's rule, Swedish was spoken only by about 15% of the population, especially the upper and middle classes. It was the language of administration, public institutions, education, and cultural life. So I guess my great-great-grandparents were privileged enough to be within the minority that spoke the dominant language. It's okay, Grampy. You were right. We're Swedish. Anyway, August fell in love with Ida Snell, who is also a Finnish-born Swede, and they got married in 1892. The following year, in 1893, August left Finland for the U.S., to avoid serving in the Russian army since Finland was still under rule of the Russian Empire. The Russians, I think, had control of Finland or at least were threatening that and he didn't want to get drafted into the Tsar's army. So he went he left Finland and went to the US. He also needed to find work because Ida was pregnant with their first child. The years between 1870 to 1930 are sometimes referred to as the Great Migration of Finns into North America. New migrants often sent letters home describing their life in the New World, and this encouraged more and more people to leave in hopes of finding like, acres of land or tons of money working in mines or factories or railroads. So August left on a boat to Ellis Island, hoping to board a train to Ogden, Utah to work in a mine. He knew he, I guess he knew somehow that he could find work there. Unfortunately, he faced the bitter end of Ogden's rush for ore, due in part to the Panic of 1839. What happened here was that in an attempt to stabilize the economy after Benjamin Harrison left it, Grover Cleveland obtained the repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890. Its consequence was that demand for silver dropped immediately and tons of businesses, national banks, and mining towns failed, including Ogden. August had no money to send home to his wife and newborn baby Einar, but Ida became a successful seamstress to support herself and her baby. 
Then, when Einar was six years old, I just sold her possessions and came to the U.S. to be with August. He had two cousins in Spokane, Washington, so she chose to go there. But when she arrived, she heard that August was in a guarded temporary prison called the Bullpen. And after a bit of digging, I found that what my grandpa was referring to when he told me about this was the Coeur d'Alene Labor Confrontation of 1899, which was actually the second of two major labor management confrontations. It basically resulted from the miners' frustrations with the fact that they were receiving 50 cents to a dollar less per day than the other miners, which was actually a pretty significant amount. And that their bosses actually hired spies to infiltrate the mines and arrest anyone who held a union card. On April 29th, 1899, thousands of union members boarded a train and filled it with dynamite. They unloaded it and completely exploded the mine and all the barracks. When Ida came to the bullpen, she told the guards she had just arrived with her young son. So they released August and the three of them traveled to a mining town in Canada called Rosslyn, British Columbia. Four months later, their first and only son passed away. He fell off the porch and hurt his eye, and it got infected, and he died from that. Five more children were added to the family while they lived in Canada. Elmer, Elsie, Ruby, Gladys, and Evald. Evald was my grandpa's dad. Then in 1916, I think it was, they moved from Canada to Woodby Island, mm -hmm. and they acquired a piece of land and had a small farm. And they lived happily ever after. But at whose expense? Acquired a piece of land. Acquired. Acquired? I don't know. Um, much about it. I don't know how they acquired it. I know they didn't have much money when they yeah. came here, but the farm was already in existence. The farmhouse still stands on Woodby Island. This is when I really started to feel that critical element of the podcast nagging at me. In Affirming Diversity Chapter 2, Sonia Nieto and Patty Bodhi say, Multicultural education forces teachers and students to take a long, hard look at everything as it was and is, instead of just how we wish it were. I did more digging. I found a picture of the Dahlman family in front of their farm. It was sepia-toned. August had a black mustache, a bowler hat, and was holding Evald's hand. He looked tiny, probably three years old, with a little beret tilted to his right side. Elmer, Ida, and the girls stood a little further to the right, the girls all with handmade dresses and neat white bows in their hair. Even more digging. Finally. Double Bluff Farms. A Windermere ad? It read, Own a piece of would-be history. This 1915 farmhouse offers a warm and inviting kitchen, welcoming living room features two fireplaces and tons of natural light. 
over 11 acres to saddle up and ride? Or how about a hobby farm? The possibilities are as endless as the charm. Your ranching dreams come true with four plus or minus acres of fenced pasture plus a loafing shed plus two stall horse and hay storage. Easy access to downtown Freeland and Double Bluff Beach. For just $450,000, exactly 100 times more than it was worth when August and Ida lived there. I felt annoyed. I felt offended. How can these real estate agents sell this gorgeous land that belonged to my family? How could they sell a piece of my family's history? Oh wait. This wasn't my family's land, nor will it be anyone else's. This land belonged to the Snohomish people. This land was stolen, and my family benefited from that. This native tribe wove baskets and wool. They were woodcrafters and gathered where fish and shellfish thrived. Permanent villages dotted the northern coastal rim, and they decamped seasonally to follow spawning salmon. They tended and gathered a wide variety of plants. The name of their central village meant either in the basket or lots of a certain species of crabs. But it was the most important Snohomish village, surrounded by a cedar palisade and their land. It was relatively dry due to the rain shadow from the Olympics, but it was rich in forest and marine resources. They had two staples of their diet, which was camas and bracken fern, which they kept thriving by burning and clearing it. Their prairies offered fertile ground. But then there was colonization. In broadening the meaning of citizen education, Native Americans, and tribal nationhood, Jeanette Haynes Ryder defines colonization as the process by which a people exploit and or annex the lands and resources of another without their consent and unilaterally expand political power over them. European Americans cleared the land of remaining native flora to plant market crops such as potatoes and wheat. The land was fought over by Spain, Russia, Britain, and America, and then Britain and America, and then America. The American government offered free land to white males, and they pushed out the Snohomish, they pushed out the native people, and they stole their land. I emailed my dad. Hi dad, um, I'm crying and I haven't cried in a long time. I've been learning about American Indians and Alaska Natives and tribal sovereignty and land and it's been causing me a lot of pain and guilt and I'm just not really sure what to do with that. It's like I finally truly opened my eyes to how much privilege we have and it's almost disgusting to me. Like obviously I'm grateful and I should use it for good, but right now I think I just need 
to grieve. Sweet, sweet Bridget, you have such a tenderness that I always worry you will be overwhelmed by the pain of the world. There's so much and you want to absorb it so it might be a little less for others. I wish it worked that way, but you and I both know it doesn't. Grief and guilt over our privilege seems like a pretty reasonable response at the beginning, maybe even along the way. Just don't get yourself stuck there. I always tell folks that if guilt doesn't move us to do something or change in some way, then it's really worthless. So just let it go and enjoy your life. I know you'll feel it and do something though. You already are. There are plenty of good, loving, active groups in the world and you'll find one or you'll make your own. I'm so proud of who you are. I'm glad I had some part raising such amazing children. Like my mom and dad, I did what I could with what I had and trusted you to do the rest. And you have learned and grown in so many ways that I never could have helped you to do. You chose paths and courses and friends and you choose things every day that make you who you are. And you are beautiful and fierce and loving. I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon, but if the world ended tonight, I'd want all my children to know that I could not be prouder of who they are and who they are becoming. If you weren't my children, I'd want to be in your life to know you. Thank you for your tender words and being such a bright, shining light in the world. All the way to the moon, then put a stick there and keep going. I love you. Love, Dad. A movement cannot start without the practice of healing, and healing is what I must do first. But I must not stop there, because praxis is the connection between theory and reflection and action. So action will be my next step. In the words of Beverly Tatum, to whom much is given, much is required. Thank you.